this morning, as we think about the text that we come to in James, and we're going to be out of James for the next two weeks, for Palm Sunday and, and for Easter. And so today will be the last lesson out of James for a couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I think back to, to when I was a child, and, you know, a lot of us, unless you're just better than I am, but when we're, when we're children, we have a, a highly individualized perspective on, on pretty much everything. I mean, we, we think the world revolves around us. I remember as a, as a child, when I would leave a room, I, I just thought people just prepared for my next arrival, uh, prepared for my next entry. And so I wasn't really sure how they did it, how mom got the food cooked, but I was pretty sure that she was in that exact spot waiting for me to come home so that her life could begin again. I mean, we're just we're selfish, right? I remember uh, when I first started flying, I, I moved overseas when I was three, and we lived overseas for 11 years, and so I flew a lot. As a little kid, when the plane would take off, and, and I, obviously not bright as a little kid, but I would look out the window, and as the plane climbed, the ground, you know, the, the cars looked smaller, the buildings looked smaller, and in my mind, it was this awesome play mat with little toy cars everywhere and toy planes everywhere, and, and I just, in my, in my selfishness, I hated the kid that owned that, because um, that, was, that was so much cooler than, than anything I had. I had like a little four-by-six carpet and some, some hand-me-down matchbox cars from my older brother, and, and I really hated him. And so as kids, we tend to think of things in a highly individualized way and perspective. Now, the same thing applies when we start thinking about our professions. And so you're a little kid, and you're, you're growing up, and, and, and you see something on TV, and maybe you watch Indiana Jones, and man, I want to be an archaeologist, I want to wear a fedora, I want to have a whip and, and a pistol, that's what I want to do. And then, you know, a little bit longer goes on, you watch Jurassic Park, and you're like, <laughs> I, want to be, I want to be a paleontologist, but I, 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 want, I want to study them when they're dead, because it looks a little dangerous when they're alive. You know, you go on, and things begin to develop, they begin to nuance, and, and you, you start watching other things, you meet people that are professionals, you're like, man, I want to be an engineer. I want to build something that, that, that people say can't be built. I want to be a pilot. I want to fly way up in the sky. I want to be an astronaut. I, I, I mean, I don't. That, that's terrifying. But you start thinking about all these things that you want to be. And things begin to be a little more realistic, a little more realistic. You start thinking doctor. You start thinking uh, architect. You start thinking school teacher. Man, you had a teacher that just, just totally impacted the way that you look at life, the way that you think that we should interact with one another. But you're still thinking from this individualized perspective. You're still making plans largely based upon what you want to do and where you see yourself going. Man, I've, I've got good and bad news for us today. You see, today in James 4, 13 through 17 and in 5, 12, James offers us something that looks at our plans, that looks at the course that we've charted for ourselves, and it just squashes all of it. I mean, it just, it just absolutely stands in line with all the plans that we make for ourselves and just squashes all of it. So let me read for us uh, James 4, 13 through 17, and then 5, 12. And we're actually going to begin in 5, 12 today. But James writing, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. And then this is where we're going to start. James writes in 5.12, and he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. It, it, it seems that as James is writing this, he gives us an understanding that our future is not our own. Our future solely rests in the hands of God. And as we look at 5.12, now this is pretty close to the teaching Jesus offers in chapter 5 of Matthew in verses 34 through 37 when he's, he's interjecting in this disagreement between these two brothers on, on who gets the inheritance and how to divvy it up. And so Jesus, recognizing the situation, steps in. He says, hey, you guys are talking about covetousness. You guys are talking about selfishness. You guys are, you guys are talking about those things. But in this text, he says, but above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, it is readily acceptable in a lot of different business practices to, to essentially overpromise and underdeliver because you're trying to, to get business, right? I mean, you want people to, to take your bid. You want people to, to choose you and to go your direction. And so you, you absolutely talk up your skill set. You absolutely talk up the things that you can bring them. But once you get the contract, once you get this thing reined in, then you're finding ways to cut corners and to maximize profits. You've possibly committed to things that you actually have no control over. And see, when James writes this, and on the one hand, he's telling us that we need to be truthful. That as a Christian, when somebody walks up and they ask you, are, are you going to be able to do this? And you answer in the affirmative, yes, I will be able to do this. James's word to us that as a Christian, man, you need to follow through on your commitments. You need to follow through on those things that you say, yes, you will do. And conversely, you need to not follow through on the things that you say you're not going to do. But somehow we've, we've managed to change this, and, and we found that it's more palatable just to tell people yes, because saying no is just really awkward. When Valerie and I were in Prague, we worked with university students, and, and for whatever reason, it had made its way into their culture that when you would ask them, hey, we're going to, to have this get-together, we're going to have some people over to the apartment, would you like to come? And they would say, oh, yes, we will be there. We would like to come. Because for them, it, it helped you save face if they would agree to come over. And so they would accept every invitation. And so then, you know, five minutes before it got started or a couple minutes after it got started, they would send a text. And they would say, oh, Matt, I'm so sorry. I can't attend your party. Uh, next time, I will be there. It sounds so great. I'm so sorry. Send my love and kisses to Valerie. It's like, why are you kissing my wife? What's all that about? But for them, it, it didn't matter the things that they committed to, the things they said they would do, because for them, in, in, in their twisted way of looking at things, it helped Valerie and I save face if they would just commit but then not really follow through. But you see, we do those same types of things with our, our children when we say, you know, yes, dad will be here at such and such a time, or, or yes, we will get you this, or, or no, we, we won't get you that. But then we soft and we, we, we kind of get soft on our word. Man, those things spill over from our children where we think that there's no impact, but there's actually great impact because we're teaching them that you don't have to keep your word. We're teaching them that, that you can answer in whatever way you want and that things are just kind of 
They'll depend upon your mood. They'll depend upon what, what better might have developed for you. Man, we need to be pouring into our kids that our yes means yes and pouring into our children that our no means no. We need to allow people in the business world to see that as a Christian, that our, our answers, our responses are based in truth. They're based in, in a commitment to follow through on those things we say we're going to do. We don't need to be those who are, who are trying to, to play angles and connive and, 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 and try and, and manipulate situations. We need to be those when, when, when somebody says, well, can I trust what they say? Like, man, everything he says is, is, is yes and no. You don't have to get him to overcommit because what he says he will do, he's going to follow through on. You know, another layer of this, as we look to tie this into 4.13 through 17, when we overpromise on things, when, when, when we give the response of absolutely this is going to happen, I swear to you, I make an oath to you, this is going to happen. We're moving into the realm of, of controlling the future. Now, you might not think of it that way. You might just say, hey, look, that's the type of thing people like to hear. That's the, the reassurance that people like to be given. Man, I will absolutely uh, be there tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. if my alarm clock goes off and if my bed and pillow aren't as comfortable as I'm pretty sure they're going to be. But absolutely, I will be there to meet you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. See, we're moving into the realm of promising something. We need to be careful that we're not promising those things that we have no control over. We're not overcommitting ourselves and moving into the realm and into the purview of God. Now, this is, is definitely countercultural because we want people to offer us assurance, don't we? I mean, Valerie and I are in, in the middle of building a house and and I've been guilty of trying to push people in to making assurances. I've got a, a document drafted that says, I get your firstborn, or a $10,000 equivalent. And so I've, nobody signs that. But, but it's this idea where we're very comfortable trying to push other people into this. But we need to allow our yes to be yes, and our no to be no. Now as we move into to chapter 4, James is writing and, and really addressing in this section a group of Christian merchants, a group of people that, that they travel, they enter into uh, trade. Their, their goal, like a lot of us, is to, man, is to make money, right? They're in business, and business for them anyway, it appears that business is good. And so the first thing this person says is, James says that, hey, look, you say that you're going to, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. In, in 4.13, he says, essentially, that you are, you're violating things on three levels. That you're saying that you're the master of time, you're the master of travel, and you're the master of success. This person says, you know, today or tomorrow, whenever I get around to it, I'm going to go to such and such a town. I'm going to enter into business, and I'm going to be successful in what I do. So this person looks at their time. They look at their timetable, and, and they're basing things on their own success, their own blessing, right? They're, they're basing things on how it's going to benefit them. Presumably, this person hasn't entered into any type of prayer. This person hasn't entered into any type of investigation, seeking out wise counsel. This person examines the horizon, examines the scenario, and they say, today or tomorrow, I'm going to do thus and so. This person is entering into 
something that they really have no control over. He says, the way that James writes it, he says, I'm going to go into such and such a town. James sets this up as a, as a fictitious account, as obviously not to uh, offend someone, where everybody's like, oh, so-and-so was in Caesarea last year. He must be talking about, about Joe. He must be talking about Bob. Instead, he sets up this fictitious deal, but we can all see ourselves in this way. The person says, I'm going to go into such and such a town. You see, the town really doesn't matter. The location really doesn't matter. What matters for this person is their success. What matters for this person is when you boil it down, is making money. This person presumes then to the end to say, you know, not only am I going to go to the such and such a town, but I'm going to spend a year or so there. I've already determined how long I'm going to spend there. And, and while I'm there, I'm going to be making some money. This person says, I'm going to trade. I don't know if you guys have ever watched Barter Kings. I got sucked into like a two and a half hour time vortex window where the TV was on and I had this, this book from the 17th century in my lap and the next thing I know, two hours or whatever has passed and I'm, I'm you know, looking around my house trying to think what I can trade into Alexis. But, uh, but these guys, they start with something that, that really nobody, nobody wants, nobody is just you know, dying to have. Uh, they start with, with a chair. It's, it's pretty ratty, pretty beat up. And they start putting this thing on eBay, and, you know, all of a sudden this ratty chair is, you know, trendy or, you know, for all you hipsters out there. And, and so they're, they're talking it up, and they trade from, from chair, and they're trading all the way up uh, to, and one, they trade it up to an 18-wheeler. I mean, it is, it's, it's crazy the things that people will barter and trade for. And that's the, that's the thing that we see this person doing in the text, that they move to a town, and they're, they're trading goods, they're trading services for the express goal of making money. But one of the things that, if you watch that show very much, which admittedly I don't, but, but one of the guys was trying to get grass, you know, sod for a family in exchange for a playground that they had in their yard. And somewhere along the way, he made the calculated move to buy artificial turf, which I, I didn't have a good feeling when he made the trade. And probably if he would have phoned a friend, I would have said, don't, don't do that. Like, real grass and artificial, not the same thing, bro. You don't have a yard, but if somebody that looks to have one someday, right now I've got dirt, that's not, I would not be, don't, don't put artificial grass in my yard. I mean, that, that wouldn't make, anyway, so he did that, and he shows up to get the playground. He's so excited because he got a deal on this artificial grass, and the guy's like, nah, I'm just going to sell it. I'm just going to sell the playground. He's like, well, I got all this grass, man. You can cover everything. He says, no, it's, it's, it's not the same. You see, but when we look here in the text, this person doesn't take into account a bad decision. This person doesn't take into account anything. This person says it as a verifiable fact that they're going to go there. They're going to spend a year there. And they're going to trade and they're going to make a profit. But look what James says to them in verse 14. James, addressing the situation, says, I mean, this is ludicrous. He says, you say you're going to do these things, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. When we flip over to Proverbs 19.21, we read that many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This person has no idea what tomorrow will bring, but they have already made provision for the next year of their life based upon where they see things going. Well, remember the story of the, uh, of the rich man in Luke 12, 
You'll remember this guy. He has this field that just really puts out produce at an amazing rate. And so he's, he's admiring his wealth. He's checking out all the awesome things coming into him. And he says, man, I need to tear down my barns to build larger barns, to store up more and more wealth. Because for him, the end goal is having more stuff. It's having more uh, commodity so that he can have more money. And the word of Jesus is that to him is fool. Do you not know that this very night your life is commanded of you? Who will receive the things that you have stored up? You see, this person has entered into this agenda. They've entered into this, this, this path, and they're following it. But the reality is that they don't know what tomorrow holds. They don't know what tomorrow holds. The person in this scenario is just, they're, they're, they're betting, essentially. He says, for your life is but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Man, that doesn't, a mist, I don't know how many of you have tried to, to keep a mist around for a very long time, but if you go out in, in really cold weather and you take in a, a big draw of air and then you puff out, it's, I mean, take, take a picture of it because it's, it's not going to last very long. These things are ephemeral. These things are transitory. These things have no lasting impact. But this is our life. Our lives that are, that are but a, a blip. Our lives that are, that are but just such a, a short moment. And they're so fragile. They're so fragile. That for any of us who have been in a serious accident and who have lost a loved one, that life is just so fragile. That any of us, if we had known the day before the terrorist attack in New York, could have changed things. But we didn't. Life is unpredictable. The day before Pearl Harbor, no one had an inclination of the, the mass devastation that would come upon them. Life can change in an instant. The day before a stock market, stock market crashes, I mean, we see some people guessing that things are going to head a certain way, but, but by and large... People are thinking, well, it can't be as bad as all that. Life is unpredictable. Life is but a mist, but a vapor. And James offers a word of correction. He says, for those of you who essentially make these plans to say you're going to go out and do these things, in verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I know most of you are probably familiar with the term knock on wood, right? And so you'd say something, and for instance, Valerie and I have supposed to be in our house for about a month or so now, and so I just don't, I just don't say that anymore. It's not that I'm superstitious, I just, I've been proved to be a fool over and over again, so I just don't say that anymore. But, but for those of you who are superstitious, if somebody says, you know, uh, you know we're going to have great weather tomorrow, somebody else says, you better knock on wood. Well, this, I mean, goes back, and none of us are thinking this, but this goes back to the idea that spirits live in trees and in wood, and when we knock on it, we excite them, we get them stirred up so that they can bring about some type of good luck for us. But it's this idea that when we hear somebody say, you know, if, if the Lord wills, it's not a Christianized version of knocking on wood. You see, it's not this idea that then I'm going to say, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be the pastor here for five years, then I'm, I can't find any wood, everything's metal. And I say, well, yeah, yeah, 
if the Lord wills. Whoa, that was a close one. Oh man, I almost totally blew that. I mean, you know, it's not this Christianized response where God is up there and he hears someone say something and he's like, say, if I will it. Oh, they said it, okay. I can let it happen now. And so it's not this idea that, that we're forcing God to do something that somehow things are working better for us if we say that. But this is what it is. Man, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that, that says that I am sold out to accomplish the will of God in my life. That if God were to call you, and he were to come to you and say, I want you to leave Greenville, I want you to move to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, and I want you to share the gospel there. It's, it's this idea that we would follow him in that. But you see, some of us are so busy with these plans that we are really caught up in verses, verse 13. That, that we've entered into this idea where we, we're, we're busy in work and we've found a career and we've found a spouse. And man, that mortgage is weighing me down. And if, if I could just get into this next car or if I could just you know, get past this last payment. And so we're so busy in this cycle of just trying to make it through life. And our prayer in that instance is, God, I pray that you would bless me now. Let's see when we roll it back. Never once did you stop to ask God to give you direction. Never once did you stop to ask God if this is what he would have for your life. You make plans. And then on the backside, you turn to God and say, God, I made plans. Now, God, bless them. God, I expended energy. God, I expended all this money headed this direction. God, I really need you to bless that now. Friends, God's not a rabbit in a hat that we pull out to bless our every whim, to bless our every decision, to bless our every mistake. See, when we look at this, when we apply this to our lives, we need to be earnestly seeking the will of God. We need to be earnestly asking God, God, what would you have me to do for my profession? God, who would you have me to marry? God, what school would you have my children to go to? God, what car would you have me to drive, to buy. God, where would you have me to build a home? Because, friends, when we, get into the, when we get it into our minds in this mindset that God is the one who controls our today, God who's the one who holds our lives in his hand, God is the one who sees all time stretched out before him, past, present, and future, that even though our lives are transitory and ephemeral and nothing but a mist, that God sees them in total. That God has a plan for you and for your life. And that God has a plan for me and for my life. You know, I think back on my life, and when I was in high school, I began to feel God calling me into ministry. And that was a pretty terrifying thing, because up until that point, I wanted to be a doctor. And right when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a dentist, and that was the way that I was going. But it wasn't until God arrested my spirit, it wasn't until God confounded my plan, and I bowed down in humility and in following him to go into ministry, that he allowed me to have peace, that he allowed me to have this sense of purpose and direction. You know, but even in that, even in that following, I began to put restrictions on God. I was telling Carolyn the other day, it is, it is funny when we look at our life and the sequence of events that God brings us through. 
You see, when I finally made the decision and, and surrendered to, to follow God in obedience and in ministry, I said, okay, hey, look, just so we're clear, I, um, nothing against them personally, but, but I really would prefer not to work with junior high students. And um, I, I love people in the world, God, but, but, but really, though, um, if, I don't, I don't want to be a missionary. And so if, if we can do those two things, then I, I am sold out to you. Like two weeks later, I'm leading a junior high guys discipleship group. I, I mean, I taught at a private Christian school. I taught junior high guys. And then a couple of years later, I would be a missionary. I would, I would have a wife and a family, and God would allow us to have this, this wild experience on the mission field. That God is no respecter of our plans. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but the will of God will remain. That God is calling us into obedience. That he is calling us to pursue his will, his purpose, his desire for our lives. Not to overlay that with our well-made plans. Not to overlay that with the, with the things that we would like to really do. And moving into verse 15. Guys, he offers us this, this, this radical thing that, that our life should be transformed with the idea of doing his will. And then in 16, he's 17, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see, James sets up this person. He says, but for you, you boast in your arrogance. You, you look at your life and you, you boast in your arrogance. This person looks at their life and they say, man, I have been wildly successful. Everything I touch turns to gold. I've got the Midas touch in business. I've got a, a beautiful wife. I've got wonderful kids who mind when people are around and when it really matters. I've got everything going for me. This person says you, this person is boasting in their arrogance. This person looks at their own life and, and in some way says, I have done all of this. I set a plan. I, I had this, this business model. And man, I orchestrated it beautifully, wonderfully. This person is boasting in their arrogance. They're boasting in the fact that they feel that they have accomplished all of this. But God holds our life in his hands. God is the one who grants success. God is the one who grants health. God is the one who holds our tomorrows in his hand. We need to have a right recognition of our place and God's place. He goes on to say, all such boasting is evil. You see, he doesn't just say it's, it's ignorant. He doesn't just say, you know, when you boast like this, you really just sound pretty stupid. He doesn't say, you know, when you boast like this, you really just sound pretty foolish. He says, when you boast like this, it's evil. When you boast like this, when you boast in your arrogance, when you look at the things that you have been able to live through in life, and you take those as your own accomplishment and your own, you know, having done them, it's evil. It is absolutely opposed to God. This idea in this, this bravado that you think that you have made your life something, but God has been gracious to you in your disobedience, but God has been gracious to you in even allowing you to continue to draw breath in your disobedient attitude and in your disobedient action. And then James hits all of us 
in verse 17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James comes to the end and he says, <clears throat> he says, if you know the right thing to do, and, and right here when we pair it to this, so if you know that you're supposed to seek God about who you marry, if you know that you're supposed to seek God about where you live, about where you work, about how you spend your money, and you don't do that, you're sinning. You're violating God's will for your life. You're making an affront to God. You are engaged in sin when you don't do these things. When we expand it even further, we, we realize pretty quickly that knowledge is power and knowledge is dangerous for a Christian. That the more we know, the more that we study God's word, the more we have a ready recognition that we are incapable of living pure and holy lives. We are incapable of doing everything right. And so we end up having all these sins of omission where we don't do the things that we know we're supposed to do, and we are sinning in them. You see, the, the matter is that a lot of us are so terrified, what if God called us to something that we wouldn't want to do? And so we offer safe prayers we go and do whatever we want to do, and then we pray that God, please bless me, approach. We offer safe prayers, and we say, God, what would you lead me to? And then we go eat our cereal really quickly. We don't wait around because we're terrified of what if our relationship with Christ demanded something of us? What if it demanded that we sell our business, that we sell our home, that we sell our car, and that we move to the furthest reaches of the world? Or for some of you, it's even more terrifying. What if God is calling you to share the gospel with somebody? And so that's, that's why you don't pray for those around you. That's why you don't pray for opportunity, because you are terrified that God might actually give that to you, and you would have to follow through with it. Friends, God is calling us into a radical relationship with himself. God is, is, is calling us as Christians not into an easy relationship, but a relationship that demands everything. A relationship that demands our very lives, livelihoods, and reputations. You see, we live in a success-driven culture that, that wants to take us and put us in the driver's seat of life. And if, if God is even allowed in there, it's, it's really only to sit in the back seat and to, to keep his mouth shut. And it really to, to extend to us protection, but to give us no direction. But the only way to go through life as a Christian is to allow God to have carte blanche, to allow God to have complete rule over everything in our lives. See, we see an example of this in Hebrews 11.8. You'll remember the story of, of Abraham, that God called him out of, a, of really a heathen people, that he called him out of a heathen land, and he called him into a new land. He said, I'm going to take you to the promised land, I'm going to give you a great inheritance. Verse 8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, and key in on this, he went out not knowing where he was going. See, God doesn't always give us a clear plan. God doesn't always give us everything that we would hope to have in an answer. But we need to follow in the obedience of Abraham and that we would follow by faith not even knowing where we're going. 
You see this lifestyle reported in 4, 13 through 17 says, I'm going to do whatever I want, and then I'm going to ask God to bless it on the backside. Friends, God is calling us into a relationship of obedience. He's calling us into this faith like Abraham that says, God, I will follow you even when I don't know where I'm going. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning as we reflect on our lives, that we would ask ourselves the question of what areas of our lives are we keeping back from you? What areas of our lives are we, are we scared to ask you to move in? What areas of our lives are we, in fact, boasting in our arrogance and in our ignorance, God? That as you reveal those to us, Father, I pray that we would, would humbly submit our lives to you. whether it be to go and serve as a missionary, God, or whether it simply be to go across the street and to share a life-saving message with a neighbor that we've lived beside for 20 years or a family member. God, help us not to buy into the lie that says that, that success is what matters. But God, it is faithfulness to you and faithfulness to your word. I pray that you would not let us be a people that are driven by monetary success or by reputation or even a desire to have a, a good family. But God, our desire would be to please our King, would be to please our Lord. And Father, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.